0: This is Crescent Project Radio, bringing you powerful testimony, practical teaching, and exciting truth about God's miraculous movement in the Muslim world, and how we as Christians can join Him in this kingdom work. Our goal is to see every Muslim have an opportunity to respond to the gospel and be connected to a true follower of Jesus. You can find us online at crescentproject.org. Have a comment or question? Email them to radio at crescentproject.org. We would love to hear from you and have a chance to respond on a future program. Hi, I'm Rashida, and you're listening to
1: Crescent Project Radio, where we believe we have a hope worth sharing. Welcome to part two of this two-part series about what medical missions can look like in the Islamic world and the doors that it can open for ministry to Muslims. My guest today is Dr. Sam, a family doctor from the U.S. who served in a Christian hospital in South Asia for over 15 years, and who's now back in the States, teaching medicine, training others in international medicine and medical missions, and reaching out to refugees, immigrants, and international students in his local community. Dr. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Crescent Project Radio.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
1: So glad to have you. Let's start with your story. How did you get involved in medical missions?
2: So I was exposed as a churched child uh, to medical missions, but it really wasn't until I was in university that the gospel got a hold of me and I understood the, the beauty and the wonder and the forgiveness of God and the calling of God to wholeheartedly follow God. So my my real conversion to Christ meant for me that the trajectory of my life would be different. And I felt very clearly at that point, as a freshman in college called to medical missions, sort of the combination of caring for people wholeheartedly and going to a place mm-hmm. in the world where there wasn't much medical care mm-hmm. and um as an expression of the grace of God in my own life so uh, originally i like many people thought i would be heading to africa because that was the most poor part of the world that i knew about mm-hmm. but through various connections uh i was well, actually then at that point it was my wife and i were directed towards south asia
1: Yeah. Can you paint a picture for us of the medical work that you did in South Asia and the journey that got you there?
2: Well, first, it took a long time to get there because medical training in the U.S. goes Mm -hmm. on and on. And then uh, first there's uh, undergraduate and then there was medical school and then there was Mm -hmm. specialty training and then there was getting out of debt. So that took a number of years, and then mm-hmm. getting a visa and getting training and raising support and um, all those things took quite a long time, but at my age, I look back and it didn't doesn't seem that long but i I joined uh, hospital work uh, my my work was hospital based, um, mainly because I really enjoyed a uh, hospital work. I dabbled for a little while in the idea of working in community health but landed in a uh, established uh, Mission Hospital, where I did both inpatient and outpatient work. I learned ultrasound because that was something that was needed there, even though I had not been trained in it. And I I learned a lot in terms of managing people without the benefit of specialists, uh, which was very different from the U.S. So I, as a primary care physician, took on the what in the U.S. would be a Pulmonologist or a rheumatologist, uh, mm. physicians. And I formed many relationships through the medical work. The, the hospital was a very public institution. The vast majority of our patients are, were Muslim and we were able to care for them both in the outpatient, the inpatient setting. We became friends and they were very hospitable people and invited us as foreign medical workers mm-hmm. into their home. Um, we were o- openly able to share from the holy books in the institution of the hospital because wow. of its historical place within the cultural context. Hmm. Um, so we did that on the wards and in the, the uh, waiting rooms. Uh, we just opened the scriptures and share stories and ask questions and preach in that way. So there's a great respect for the holy books. And, and in many Muslim countries, religion is much more public than it is in the United States. So mm-hmm. it was sort of expected that one would be publicly a person of one's faith. So it when I first got there, it sort of seemed odd to walk into a waiting room of people and say, oh, yeah, it's time to read from the scriptures. But in South Asia... Mm -hmm. Uh, where I was, it was not an odd thing at all. And I came to really appreciate that about the culture.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So were you guys having some type of daily devotional time? What did that look like?
2: Yeah, so for the staff, there was a chapel every morning, which was in the language of the place where I was. Mm -hmm. And then during that time, there would be individuals from among the staff, be they national staff or foreign staff, that would be assigned to the male ward or the female ward or the peds ward or the OB ward or the male or the female waiting room. And during that time, uh, each morning, uh, this opening of the holy books and, and preaching from them would occur.
1: Wow. And what was the in terms of the staff, what was the, uh, I guess, um, percentages of foreign versus national staff there? Yeah,
2: vast, vast majority national staff, uh, very few foreign staff, but mm-hmm. national staff among the administration and among the, the doctors and nurses, and lab mm-hmm. tech, and physical therapy. Yeah, so the vast majority was national with some foreign presence.
1: Mm-hmm. And so the national staff, were they all Christians?
2: Yeah, in order to maintain a Christian identity as an institution, I think it's important to have people of a shared faith and, and a shared mission, mm-hmm. um, particularly a mission of proclamation, but also a mission of compassion and, and a mission of care to the poor. I think it's the same thing in the U.S. system. <laughs> I think we can see how medicine has become a big uh, economic infrastructure, you know, vast machine, as opposed Mm -hmm. to and and tends to lose its understanding of what its purposes are, and that's true internationally as well. Yeah. So um, the all of the upper level staff were Christian.
1: Okay. So can you tell us some stories about? What you saw God do in these, in the lives of Muslims through these structured times of sharing, but also in all of the spontaneous moments that must have also occurred of sharing life and truth and love with them.
2: Yeah. So God works um, in multiple contexts, and one of my best friends in the village where we were, I mm-hmm. I met him one day when I was taking my young son for a walk in the village. And there was a big cage of chickens there and you could buy your chicken and go home with chicken for dinner that night. And mm-hmm. the shopkeeper was very friendly and he invited us in and he asked our little five-year-old if he wanted a chicken. And of course he said, sure, I'd love a chicken. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with that chicken when we get home? <laughs> so and then this old lady walked in and, She said to him, you can't give that little boy just one chicken. That chicken will be lonely. So we ended up with two chickens. And we came home and we built a chicken coop and we raised, ended up raising chickens. But I became friends with that shopkeeper and ended up reading the scriptures with him and also with his family. And it was very interesting how they connected to jesus um, they were sufis and found sort of a, a resonance with jesus um, and with the more conservative elements of muslims in their society they sort of had an understanding of them as the pharisees yeah mm-hmm. so it was interesting the categories that he developed so he never uh, my main friend within that family has has never become a follower of jesus but He's been introduced to the scriptures, and um, mm-hmm. I, I pray for him regularly. There are also other stories. Of, there was a time in the hospital where I was taking care of a woman who'd had some sort of postpartum cerebral event. We didn't know if it was a stroke or what, but she was having difficulty with her balance and difficulty mm-hmm. ambulating, walking, and difficulty with her vision. But, within the course of the hospitalization, one of the nurses said, "This woman's husband is a follower of Jesus," and I, I said, "Whoa, I, I'd love to meet him so normally the the male members of the family aren't on the female ward because mm-hmm. of the separation within the cultural context, but I was able to meet him, and I invited him over to visit at our house and heard his story, and his story was really fascinating to me he had been working at an Islamic training school and was himself about to go and fight in jihad. Um, mm. But he hadn't told his wife about that. And oh. so one night, soon about, close to the time where he was to go to leave to fight in jihad, he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus was in a white robe and was beckoning him to come. And he knew it was Jesus because there were a bunch of people in front of Jesus who were sort of bowing before him and acknowledging him as Jesus. So um, he was among those people. Jesus beckoned him to come. He went to him. Jesus laid his hands on him and told him not to kill and not to deceive. Mm. And then he woke up, and the next day he said that he went to the the cleric who was in charge of the Islamic training center where he was working and told him um the story of his dream. Oh. And he was told that that dream was from Satan, that, that he shouldn't mm-hmm. follow the dream. Mm-hmm. But he was not convinced by the cleric, and then on his own, uh, got a hold of what he would call Jesus's holy book the the New Testament mm-hmm. and read it and became follower of Jesus on his own and so what we were able to do was to connect him with other men like him um mm-hmm. who had similar experiences and similar stories so it was a real encouragement to me you know he you would never know culturally looking at him that Mm -hmm. he would have been a follower of Jesus. He looked like a Islamic holy man with a big beard and and, Mm -hmm. and, uh like we might see pictures of Taliban on the news, but Mm -hmm. this man was a a warm, warm man and, and a very uh convinced man of the truths of the gospel and is and has gone on to to continue to follow Jesus and the the gospel and has spread among his family members. He hasn't had a lot of contact with foreigners, Mm
3: -hmm. which
2: is a difficult thing in our particular context. But the periodic contact that he has had has been uh, encouraging. So that was one story. I saw hundreds, thousands of patients, and um, sometimes it's hard to believe that God is moving, that God is working uh, Mm -hmm. in people's lives. But this was a great encouragement to me, Yes, he was.:
1: And that man, was he actually in communication or in, in relationship with other believers when you met him, or was he? No my-
2: he, he was not. Yeah, he was not. Wow. He was sort of on his own, so yeah, we were wow. able to connect him with others like oh, that's him. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There was another man that I became friends with, and he was um, very educated. Had a master's in Islamics and he had spent about seven years actually studying the Christian holy books, the the Bible, what we would call. Mm -hmm. And um, after those seven years of studying on his own and meeting with a local Christian teacher, Mm -hmm. he also became a follower of Jesus. His story was difficult. His wife treated him as unclean for a number of years. But eventually mm-hmm. warmed up to him. And, um, but he's been somewhat secretive about his faith, just sort of out of fear, has shared it with his immediate family members, but at times faced difficulty with threats of being revealed within the local news about his life. Yeah. So these, these stories are, are moving and beautiful, but they also are difficult. Yeah. Um, difficult uh, journeys for people to have as they follow Jesus.
1: Yes. And going back to that first story that you shared about the opportunities that God opened up for you to share scripture with the whole family. Can you tell us a little bit more about how opportunities like that opened up for you? Because that's not something that's very common here in the U S but it sounds a lot like the new Testament.
2: Yeah. So the, there's a great respect for the holy books
1: mm-hmm. within
2: conservative Muslim communities. So our chosen method or image or model was to introduce people to the scriptures. So, mm-hmm. uh, so the picture would be of of some national holding the scriptures, engaging with the scriptures, reading them and us maybe standing beside them or, or behind them
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and letting them see for themselves through the scripture, who Jesus is with us prayerfully pray, praying that the, the um, reality of Jesus would sort of dawn upon them, that the spirit would move in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so for instance, if there was a story of, a miracle that Jesus did, pointing to his divine power, the mm-hmm. story of the transfiguration. I remember talking deeply with my Muslim friend who was so captivated by that story, you know, with sort of the, the veil being lifted and the glory of Christ being revealed, or the story of the prodigal son, or I, I read quite a bit from the Beatitudes. Um, just the progression of you have to be poor in spirit before you can see. But then at the end, persecution comes. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so people were quite receptive to those. We didn't start out with things that were really controversial, like the right. whole son of God
3: issue, <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: but tried to to choose um, passages that would point to the reality that this man is no ordinary prophet. Mm-hmm. There's something divine about him. It's so compelling.
1: And just curious, did you get any of the the objections about the, the scriptures being corrupted?
2: Yes. Yeah. People are taught that the scriptures are corrupted, but then they also have these great respect for the scriptures. So I would try mm-hmm. to address the issue of corruption of the scriptures with reason. You know, when were they corrupted? Who corrupted them? Right. Why would they have been corrupted? Um, right. You know, we have so many examples of the scriptures uh, from the early centuries, but I don't think that reason was something that spoke to most <laughs> local people. It was more mm-hmm. the compelling character of Christ in the scripture. Yeah, and i I think that I think that all of us know. That to love is to suffer. So one of the things that became just so apparent to me being in a context that was predominantly Muslim is how profoundly different it is to have a God who suffers versus a God who doesn't suffer. A God who is sort of removed or aloof from suffering. But life is suffering. (laughs) And, um, I think the beauty of that is apparent in the scripture. It, it certainly people had difficulty with the, the terrible dishonor that was done to Jesus in his uh, betrayal and his crucifixion and his mockery. Um, and that was uncomfortable for people to read. Um, but we would just explain that that's, that's the whole beauty of it. Uh, The, the whole sacrificial system is met. The love of God is, is revealed in the suffering of Jesus, but is a very stark contrast uh, between these two uh, understandings of God. So our, our goal was really to share the holy book. So if there, if we could have an image, it would be sharing the scripture with someone, having them engage with the scripture and through it come to know who Jesus is and us sort of standing in the background, having introduced them to the scripture. So this is this is the, the method that we took. So I would just sit down and it wouldn't be with whole families generally because you don't meet with women that much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they might come and, and serve food or that kind of thing, but generally men meet together in conservative Muslim societies, but, but basically just opening the book and, and saying, let's read this parable or let's read this, uh, story of Jesus' power or let's read this, um, story of the transfiguration and, and look at what does this mean about who this man was. Yeah. And just engaging with it and saying, tell us, tell me what you've, tell me what you've heard. Tell me what you've seen. And approaching uh, the stories of Jesus and the power that they have and the the pointing that they do to the reality that this was no ordinary man and no ordinary prophet
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, it comes clear through the scriptures
1: yes so now you're back in the u s what kinds of opportunities have you had to continue to be involved in Muslim ministry
2: yeah so. It started soon after we had returned to the United States. Um, I was making some connections with South Asians, but we had someone come to our church from Catholic Charities who talked about refugees. We we're having a whole series on loving one's neighbor.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, I just walked up to him and said, you know, I speak this language and I would really be happy to help in any way that I can. So, Uh, She connected me with a family of five orphans that were in foster care. And they had come because they were part of a persecuted Muslim minority Mm. uh, within South Asia. And they'd gotten Mm. refugee status based on that. So the oldest one was a a boy. And within many uh, Islamic contexts, I think in the developing world, more so than in the Western world, there's a role of an uncle or an auntie, uh, mm-hmm. be it a family member or sort of outside of the family. So
3: mm-hmm. if,
2: and I just love that role. I became uncle to many young men, mm-hmm. uh, in South Asia and, um, and this young man, about 18 years old at the time, he was ready for an uncle. So we became friends and I've spent a lot of uh, time. With him and also gotten to know his siblings who are in foster care. He, he, um, aged out of foster care. So he's now on Mm -hmm. his own with other young men, um, Mm -hmm. of his particular minority religious group. Um, so that's been a, a joy to me. And then there have been a a lot of connections through medicine because there are lots of folks from all over the world who want to come and practice in the United States and some Mm -hmm. of them make it. So that's been, Really fun as well. Just recently, I've been pursuing the opportunity to care for uh, refugees. Um, We're having a huge influx of new refugees, particularly from Afghanistan
3: Mm -hmm.
2: now. And I'm um, looking to start a refugee clinic within our city in the United States, working with the local health department. And through my church and other churches, getting volunteers to help staff this clinic um, so that I can provide primary care and develop uh, relationships uh, through that.
1: That's wonderful. And you've also worked with an organization that's new to me called the Christian Medical Dental Association.
2: Yes, that's correct. So the Christian Medical Dental Association, CMDA, is a national organization. It's a bit like InterVarsity or crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's specifically for healthcare campuses around the country. So I'm working in primary care, but I'm also part-time staff. So I work with a lot of students, and mm-hmm. I um, I started at the the medical school in our city. I started an international elective uh, for fourth-year students who were interested in careers in medical missions, and I uh, couldn't take them to South Asia. Because because of security concerns of medical schools, they're very risk averse, but um, have been able to take them to Sub-Saharan Africa. So just a, a different context, but also just uh, being at a, a mission hospital. Most of them, the medical students, have never had the experience of working in a Christian institution because their training has been a, in a very secular environment. So, right, just the joys of chapel every morning, sort of a shared position of. Uh, bowing before Jesus and understanding, uh, why we do what we do, uh, in a shared context is a new experience for these students and they, they tend to really love it. Yeah. And then that month I focused not on just medical care, but really listening to God and asking questions. What can God teach me through this experience about the trajectory of my whole life? Mm-hmm. Um, and, What can God teach me about being a global Christian? What can God teach me about poverty? What can God teach me about justice? Um, What can God teach me about the things that I value and what our kingdom values? So um, Mm -hmm. that's been part of what I've done since I've been back in the US. And, And we also, there's a Global Missions Health Conference every November. At a large church in Louisville, Kentucky, it's the largest Mm -hmm. medical missions conference in the world, and so I take students to that each year and and try to contribute to their spiritual formation. It was a it's it's pretty stressful experience (laughs) medical training in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. they're Mm -hmm. they're formed in a certain way, but my my goal is to to contribute to their professional formation, but particularly to form them into the kind of people Jesus would want them to be.
1: Right. And so my final question for you Dr. Sam is you know you've had this wide variety of experiences ministering to Muslims here in the US and abroad what are some lessons and insights that you could share with us about building bridges with Muslims?
2: Yeah, my my wife and I like to say keep it relational. Yeah, we, we live in a society that is, is much more disconnected, um, Mm -hmm. from families and from communities and neighborhoods than most Muslims have experienced, unless they've grown up in the U.S., but relationships just mean everything. And, and we learn and we grow through relationships and we're introduced to new ideas through relationships. And the studies will say that it takes about seven years for a Muslim with Regular exposure to followers of Jesus, the average is about seven years in terms of them coming to faith in mm-hmm. Christ. So relationships and consistency in relationships really matters. We have, we have s- some different assumptions uh, about the world and about God and certainly an, a trinitarian understanding of God and God as one who's entered into the pain of the world in Christ to redeem the world and make all things new that's a very different concept than Allah but then on the other hand in our increasingly secular uh, American culture the primary posture of bowing before God is something that we share as followers of Jesus and as uh, Muslims so we have a, a same starting place of bowing before god and i think it's important to realize that that is a shared thing and it's a it's a very valuable thing and mm-hmm. i think that as the society bows less <laughs> in the west mm-hmm. that um the fact that we are people who bow before god will mean that we have a lot in common but we also don't want to ignore the differences and
3: mm-hmm. and
2: i i think that In my experience, Muslims respect people who are, who are honest about the differences and not just sort of talking about God as though we believe in the same God because there are really Mm -hmm. profound differences in understanding of uh, who God is and who uh, Christ is. And I think we shouldn't be afraid to talk about God. I, I learned so much from being in South Asia. About being a public Christian that I hadn't really learned in the United States. So I came back to the U.S. just thinking, you know, all these, these cultural ideas that, that one's faith is a private matter. They're, that's just a cultural idea. I don't have to follow that cultural norm. So I just became public about my faith. I used God language. Um, in South Asia, you ask someone how they're doing and you say, Thanks be to God. Um, You don't say, I am well. You say, thanks be to God. So I I started using that type of language in uh, the U S. And I I think that it's, it's very fine to do that in in this, in a sensitive way. So not being afraid to to talk about God and uh, to speak of God as though God is part of everyday life and to be openly uh, religious in, in the South Asian context, they, Because Muslims pray publicly five times a day. If you're not seen praying, then they think you don't pray. (laughs) So, so I would be more open in my prayers, even in, even in the West. And um, I learned to refer to the scriptures more in the context of daily conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I think that that's a good thing to do, even in, even in the U.S. So, so, so pushing against sort of the The push for the privatization of religion, uh, in the United States, which you're seeing even more so with the sort of cancel culture that's going on now. And lastly, I, I think it's something to be emphasized over and over again, the great beauty and wonder of the relationality of God. The God, the fact that God approaches us, God is near to us, God is with us in Emmanuel. I remember one conversation I had and I was telling a Muslim friend about how I pray in the morning, and I told him that I prayed the psalm against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight in my time of confession. And he said, No, 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 no. That's not it at all. We sin against the Sharia. We sin against the law. We don't sin against God Himself. We don't mm-hmm. sin against Allah. And and it made me it was just an example of uh, the difference between the the intimacy with God that that our sin would sort of personally affect God, um, whereas mm-hmm. it's not it's not just that God has handed out the Sharia and we're supposed to follow the Sharia. God has has been numbered among the transgressors. God is is near to us. Um, mm-hmm. we, when we sin, we've sinned against the relationship that we are supposed to have with God. So that's a very, very precious thing that we can't, we can't overemphasize. And lastly, just praying that God would speak in dreams. You know, there were, I have multiple stories of how God uh, spoke to people in dreams to draw people to himself. And uh, so I pray that for my Muslim friends.
1: Amen. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Dr. Sam, thank you so much for joining us to share just a little bit about your experiences, um, using your medical profession as, as you said earlier, an expression of the grace that you've received from God and a way to, to share life and to share the truth with, with people who, who'd so desperately need to hear it. Would you be willing to close us in a word of prayer?
3: Yes, absolutely. Lord,
2: we praise and thank you for the great gift of grace that we see in the gospel. Thank you that this is good news to secular Westerners. Thank you that this is good news to uh, Muslims in all parts of the world. Uh, Lord, thank you that Jesus is the answer to the longing for purity that Islam has, uh, because Mm -hmm. it's a purity that we can never achieve ourselves. It's a purity that's bestowed upon us, that's given to us through the righteousness of Jesus and his great sacrifice, Mm -hmm. Lord. So we, we praise you for that gift. Uh, We praise you that you have sought us out, that you've sought all the peoples of the world, that you have pursued us in the gospel and uh, give us grace to know how to uh, reflect that in how we relate to our Muslim neighbors, Lord. I pray that you would raise up more medical workers to go all over the world and to use medicine as a means of uh, sharing the gospel with people who don't know you. Thank you for the access that medicine uh, gives into the lives of people, lives Mm -hmm. into the their their suffering, into their families, uh, into their places of uh, vulnerability in which we can love and speak the truth of the gospel. So I thank you for that. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to Crescent Project Radio. We believe we have a hope worth sharing. Learn more about Crescent Project online at crescentproject.org, where you can find all of our previous podcasts featuring testimonies from former Muslims, teaching and apologetics, interviews with ministry leaders and book authors, along with commentary on current events and ministry news. Email us your comments or questions to radio at crescentproject.org. Stay connected by subscribing to our bi-monthly email, Call to Prayer, which is focused on prayer for the Muslim world. We hope you'll join us again next time on Crescent Project Radio.